Hi everyone, welcome to today's episode of Party Like a Marketer. Today's guest is Darius Kemp, the Head of Equity and Community Change at Ease. Born and raised in Birmingham, Alabama, Darius grew up in a union household, as his dad was the member of the Railroad Workers Union, which is very unusual in the South, and a mother who was a nurse. Through his education at a historically black university, Alabama A&M, and experiences growing up queer in the South, he developed a passion for improving the living conditions of underserved communities. Receiving his BA in political science and criminal justice, and after working on various political campaigns in Alabama, he joined the Service Employees International Union as an organizer. After several years mobilizing and engaging with workers and unions, he joined the Peace Corps and served in Jamaica as an at-risk youth advisor. Following the Peace Corps, Darius enrolled in graduate school at the University of Birmingham in England, receiving an MA in political science and international relations with a concentration on human rights. Returning to the U.S. over the next decade, Darius became the Organizing and Communications Director for the University of California Student Association, Regional Director for Working America, the community affiliate of the AFL-CIO, and joining the Representation Project, the creators of Misrepresentation and The Mask You Live In, as the Director of Mobilization. In pursuit of more autonomy, he began Just Kind Consulting to support organizational change and advise progressive political campaigns. Currently, Darius serves as the head of equity and community change at Ease Technologies, focusing on improving the cannabis industry standards for social equity partnerships and systemic change. Darius, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Hey, Lisa, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Of course. So I always like to start this and find out a little bit more about who Darius is and and how you got here. Could you tell us a little bit about um, your career and your work prior to cannabis and what brought you uh, to this space? Yeah, I actually have a very abnormal um, entryway into cannabis. I think a lot of people would say that they started off, you know, maybe uh, selling it illegally, you know, um, uh, when they were younger. Or some people would say, oh, I was a, I've been a longtime grower and cultivator because I understand the medicines and, and you know, or indigenous folks or, or folks from the global south might have these kind of deep roots and connections to the plant. I, however, come from um, uh, the, the kind of American westernized black background of this. And what that means is that um, for most of my life, I'm originally from Alabama, most of my life, um, uh, cannabis was a was it was like, oh, no, those losers and layabouts smoke weed. Losers, layabouts, ragamuffins, rapscallions, call them whatever you want, right? And um, I am supposed to be, you know, and I'm pretty much a nerd. Anyone that knows me knows I'm pretty much a nerd. So I've always been kind of like, book smart, like, oh, I'm reading, I'm do, you know, uh, 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 making straight A's or doing that kind of jazz, right? So uh, the fear of cannabis was always placed inside of me. So, um, uh, you know, I'm going to tell my first time I smoked weed story, if you don't mind. Really, oh, so. please. Please. So <laughs> um, one of my closest friends, uh, God rest her soul, she passed away last year in a car accident. Um, we've known each other, we had known each other since we were in high school. Um, uh, so 
we went to the summer camp. We were teenagers, yada, yada, yada. We go to college. We go back and we work at the summer camp, yada, yada, yada. And so, uh, you know, one summer we're, you know, in Alabama. Yeah, all in Alabama, in Birmingham, Alabama, where I'm from. And one summer after, you know, we worked at the summer camp, you know, we're all, you know, still on summer break from college. Oh, well, actually, this is after I graduated from college. And I tell him, I, I'm going to I'm going to backpack across Europe for the summer after, you know, th- you know, in a couple of weeks. Um, that's my senior. That was my graduation present to myself. Uh, I was like, not a, white people aren't the only people that can backpack across <laughs> Europe. I want to do this. And my friend Gloria, who's this Korean woman, you know, um, love her to death. And, and our friend Gaines. They tell me, she's like, I'm not going to send a black man to Amsterdam, to Europe in Amsterdam, never having smoked weed. Because I had never smoked weed. I was like 23 years old, never smoked weed before. And uh, I was like, okay. And so basically they hotboxed me and we get like in their car, in her car in the parking lot, like a week before I go to Europe. <laughs> just to get a sample uh, to be fair she was 100% correct about me uh, about that because I go to Amsterdam uh, first night I'm there I walk into the Bulldog Hostel which is very famous back in the day and I look up and who do I see but literally two people also from Birmingham Alabama that me and Gloria also know smoking weed at the bar Oh my gosh. So I felt very confident being like, hey guys, <laughs> I'll smoke one with you. I've done this before. So uh, so she was always right, which is the point uh, I'm making here. Um, but that's the, you know, the long and short of it is that like, you know, the fear of cannabis had put in, been put into me so long up until I was 23. I was like, oh, and then I smoked. I was like, oh, this isn't bad. This is, it helps me expand my mind and think about bigger things and communicate with partners and friends and, 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 and whatnot. It, it was actually a really great feeling. So that's how I got brought into cannabis. Um, and to get through all the worky stuff, uh, after college, I went to, so I went to an HBCU, historically black colleges and universities, uh, Alabama A&M University, go Bulldogs. Um, and uh, after that, I went into labor union work. I worked for NCIU for a number of years. Then I went to the Peace Corps and served in Jamaica. That's really where I learned where good weed comes from. <laughs> After, yeah. Don't tell the United States Peace Corps I said that. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's it's great. They, Jamaica has great weed and <laughs> great cannabis. Uh, and then I went to graduate school in England, uh, got my master's degree in human rights, uh, came back to the States and worked, um, and continued my work in nonprofit work, went back working in labor for a while, did LGBTQ work, worked to fight for marriage equality, worked to fight for uh, 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 rights for students with the University of California Student Association, uh, organizing marches, protests, rallies, uh, engaging strikes and whatnot. So I come from the cannabis space from a community organizing and community engagement. That's awesome. And so what um, what brought you from Alabama to California? And when did you make that transition? Did you go, did you do high school, college, Alabama, Jamaica, London, California? Something like that. Yeah, yeah. It was a very, I was a very convoluted, like, yeah, I spent most of my life in Alabama. Like, I travel a lot. My sister was actually born in California. She was born in Venice. 
Oh. Uh, and spent most of her, and my mom lived in uh, California in the Venice area back when Venice was actually a black neighborhood, believe it or not. Like, most people, I didn't know about this history until I was talking to my mom about it recently because I was telling her about our ease office that is near Venice. I'm just going to say that. <laughs> just so people can show up and figure out where it is. But, um, uh, uh, and I was telling her that, and she was like, oh, Venice, that's where your sister was born, and that's where, like, it was a really black neighborhood back in the day, and so it was really fascinating. Um, so my family has always had deep roots in California. I have cousins, family. My sister was born here. Uh, but yeah, after in after I got back from England, I actually got a job offer in, in Oakland, and I had I always wanted to live in San Francisco and in the Bay Area in Oakland, and so I took it up and, and ran, and I've been here in the Bay for about 11 years now. Awesome. Awesome. So you were doing, so, so you're in the Bay Area, you're doing community engagement, organizing for the LGBTQ community. And then a bunch of communities to be well, perfect, like students, black, like I, you know, I, uh, I, I did a lot of work with the new leaders council, uh, a lot of work with men and boys of color programs with the, uh, um, uh, green lining, um, I think it was Greenlining Institute and some other folks as well. So, yeah. And then what um, what was sort of your first step into cannabis career-wise? Did Was Ease was ease it? Yeah, Ease was it because um, so um, I, I, I was working with the Representation Project. I don't know if you've heard of them. They make movies, uh, documentaries, uh, um, social, kind of social justice or social um, kind of consciousness movies. Um, and so I was working with them uh, as the engagement director for um, uh, the Representation Project, which was run by uh, Gavin Newsom's wife, Jennifer Siebel Newsom, governor of California. Oh, yeah. The first partner, I think she calls herself these days. Um, uh, and yeah, and uh, so I left that position and went to and, and started my own consulting company called Just Kind Consulting, uh, justinkind.com. Um, and um, uh, I did that for about a year, and I, in that process, I realized how very hard it is to run your own company and your own consulting company, yes. <laughs> Yeah, and so um, about uh, about a year in, uh, my cousin called me and said, like, hey, you live in California. I would love to invest in weed. I hear this weed, like, y'all legalize it recreationally. It's like, this was at the start of the green rush, you know, right after adult legalization here in California in 17. And uh, I, he was like, hey, I'd love to invest. Can you maybe figure out, like, ways to do that? And I was like, okay, I'm a consultant. This is what I do. Let me do some research and figure this out. And in my research, I realized, like, oh, wow, like, first, I realized the one of the core issues to cannabis was social equity. Um, how are black and brown folks, uh, how are people who are affected by the war on drugs uh, making money? How are they engaging in this community? How are they being economically uplifted? Black and brown people were devastated by the war on drugs for so many years. Um, black people were incarcerated at four, ten times the rate of white people who also use the same drug, cannabis, weed, at the same exact levels as everybody else. Yeah. Asian, black, white, doesn't matter. We all use cannabis at the same percentage levels for our population. So why are, you know, so why are we laying this burden on black people? Um, well, first we lay the, the prison burden on black people, black and brown people. Then we lay the economic burden on them as well in the sense of, you know, the cannabis space being um, uh, being so expensive to get into, social equity not being focused. 
So I noticed that problem and I, I called my cousin and was like, well, here's some what I found. But what I really, you know, in my mind, I was like, this is not, how do I really engage cannabis? I was like fascinated by it because by that point I had been a cannabis user or, you know, what, since I was 23, reasonably since I was like maybe like 25. But like, you know, it's been over 15 years by that point. So I was like, you know, um, I'm a, I'm an organizer. I'm a, you know, I believe in certain rights and justice for people, especially black people. So um, I went looking for a job in cannabis because I realized, well, if I want to affect this, this community, this ecosystem, this economy, this burgeoning nascent economy, um, I need to understand how it works, who are the power players, uh, what companies are big. And, and and for me, I feel like the only way to get that kind of inside knowledge is to actually go inside. And so I went looking for careers in cannabis that would allow me to use my organizing community skills uh, in a way to better, hopefully, the cannabis culture and community. And so, so you were living in Oakland at the time, and uh, and you came across San Francisco. East? I live in San Francisco now, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> I live five years in Oakland. I'm like, this is our like sixth year in San Francisco. It's very yeah. Housing is an issue in the Bay Area. <laughs> it is. It definitely is. I totally understand that. <laughs> yeah. So then, so so, how did you come across Ease, and was the was the community manager position available or was that, you know, kind of created for, for you and this, this role? It was available. Um, you know, what was interesting is that, you know, when I joined Ease, Ease was very much articulating the point that we're a tech company, not a cannabis company. Um, and Ease that still is actually, uh, yeah, you know, 2018 actually, but, um, uh, and, and it is actually the fact Ease is, Tech is is a is a is a is a is a technology company, but I, the way we engaged in cannabis um, kind of muddied that water a little bit, right? Um, yeah. Because as a tech company, we uh, did not have the right or, or or ability to like demand that people who own the licenses, the ones who own the delivery depots that were utilizing our platform to sell cannabis, um, you know, we can demand certain things and engage in certain ways. Um, and so, you know, fast forward like two years since I've been at the company, almost two years since I've been at the company, um, we've started this verticalization process where we actually um, have multiple structures. East stays a technology company while there is a, uh, a, a separate arm of the overall corporate structure that allows for uh, management and more direct control over cannabis licenses. So so to your to your point, when I joined, it was very much like a thought process of like a normal tech company, right? Like, um, um, you know, uh, 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 Instacart or, a, a, you know, a, you know, think Salesforce or whatnot, right? Like, oh, you need to engage with the community of the folks who use our product, right? So, so it was that. Um, what I also learned is that most cannabis companies um, did not have a staffer that engaged in social equity, community, um, or any sort of like kind of non-direct sales or uh, anything that wasn't sales or cultivation or licensing or legal. It's like most cannabis companies kind of blocked it out. And didn't really engage. So, so Ease was one of the first and only companies actually hiring people to engage with the cannabis community. 
And so, so what's the, the nature of your job? Like how, how do you approach engaging with the community? Um, and how does that benefit ease and, and the industry? Yeah. So the nature of my job is, um, multi-tiered. It's so multifold. Uh, uh, you know, I have to say, I, I give a lot of credit to, um, the team at Ease and uh, everyone because um, it really was a lot of, it was a really fun, it's a fun startup culture in the sense that um, I come in, they're like, here's what we want you to do. All right. You know, I spend the first month or two trying to dissect, figure out what they want me to do and what's doable, what's not doable, what I want to do, figure out what pieces I want to add to the puzzle. And we figure out that parts of what they wanted me to do aren't necessarily we're able to do as a company but there are these other parts i found ways to to integrate in so uh to your point we were able to find ways to integrate in like a lot of work around black and brown communities around uh younger more progressive communities right um trying to really uh engage more <clears throat> with black communities directly because that's something i think the company had not fully um engaged in uh when i joined um there was not really a full engagement around the traditional cannabis culture the black folks who uh, helped create the original cannabis culture here in california in the bay and so I wanted to use any connections that I had to do that. Also, um, cannabis in California has a very specific um, lens to it when it comes to labor and unions. So most people don't know that California, when they legalized re recreational, also passed a law that required that um, cannabis companies with more than uh, 20 employees uh, would have to sign a labor peace agreement. That's not a contract. That's not some sort of bargaining agreement. It's just a uh, a, a memorandum of understanding to say that we as a cannabis company understand the rights of workers to unionize if they want, if the workers want, and we have gotten to a peaceful agreement to work with the union to, to help look at that uh, angle of our, our workforce if the workers want to organize uh, and done in a peaceful way so it's not contentious. It's not a fighting thing. And luckily, I had over <laughs> six years of experience in labor unions. So what happened is, is that over the months uh, in my first year, my work evolved into also engaging very heavily with our partners and labor unions because I had deep connections with labor in California um, before joining Ease, uh, engaging very directly in, with communities of color uh, and trying to ingrain them into the systematic work of the company uh, and also um, engaging more directly with our depot partners. Those are the ones who actually sell the weed, manage the drivers, do the day-to-day -day work. Um, so how can we best as community, uh, as, as ease in our community staff support our depot staff who are on the ground in neighborhoods with staff? Like what can we do to support the drivers? What can we do to support um, uh, them engaging with the community as a whole so that we can be good actors uh, in this space? That's awesome. Um, so, Tell me a little bit more about some ways in which I, I want to go more into the social equity conversation. And I think it's something that is 
obviously getting more is being talked about more now these days. We're seeing states like New York who aren't passing adult use bills unless not only is that included, but that it's included properly. Um, so we're starting to see change, you know, on the legislative front as well. But as far as brands and what they can do and how they can engage with community, what are what are some steps that you would suggest or recommend for cannabis companies to start not only engaging in this conversation further, but but engaging with their community? What if they maybe don't have an ease budget or they don't have, you know, the resources? What are some some immediate first steps that you you can say as, as an organizer and as as a person in this community, um, what would you suggest to brands? How can they do that better? And what do you see um, working or being effective? Yeah, so I'm going to give a shout out to like, so for an example, I'll give a really good example, a very recent one. So, you know, with all the uprisings and the people really voicing their, want their voices and opinions heard to our elected officials and as a society as a whole around anti-blackness and racism is that we are, um, uh, so we, I, I got outreach to by one of our brands uh, staffers reached out to me and said, hey, I got a call from uh, I'm going to give this is a good shout out. So hopefully they're not going to be mad at me, but and they're on our menu. I love them to death. They make the best edibles. It's called Atlas. I don't know if you ever had them. Yeah, I've heard, I know Atlas. Yeah. Yeah. A Berkeley based company. Amazing. They make the most amazing granola edibles that are just it's perfect. Just amazing. <laughs> And they're all like healthy and like, great flavors, and they're all like it's so organic-y. It's like, great, right? Uh, I'm 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 so California right now. <laughs> uh, but but they reached out and said, "Hey, we don't have a lot of resources, right?" And they're like, "You know, we're 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 a strong company, but we're not like we're not you know billions on billions of dollars, right? Um, we don't have all this money to throw, you know, to just." You know, you know, give out to anyone. So they were like, we have limited resources. How can we effectively use those limited resources? So that was, you know, for me, that was a very good, like, um, that was a very good, like, notice for me that a lot of companies um, want to do something, but don't know how. And um, they are reaching out to their partners that may have the expertise, the staff, myself, others in, in the e-space to figure out that. So first I would say, like, ask the right questions. W what money do you have available? So start with that. What what resources do you have available? Do you have sweat equity? Do you have staff that are willing to do things? Do you have financial resources? Do you have, you know, cannabis resources, right? Do you have cannabis products you are willing to give out for compassionate care and other things like that? Um, uh, so, so that's the first thing, figure out what resources you have available. And then like Atlas, once you've figured that out, you realize, you say, you reach out to your broader community and say like, Hey folks, we want to target our resources. Who are the people we can target to? Right. Cause I would say the cannabis community and space is very tight knit. Like the old yeah. school cannabis community, the folks who've been doing it for years and years and years, they are hella tight knit. Yeah. Um, and even in this space where you have like big companies, you have Ease and, 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 you know, Kaliva's and Humboldt Farms and all these folks, right? Old pals, um, uh, uh, you know, even with these kind of big spaces, they, you know, you can find ways to like get that support, um, work with folks, uh, figure out within this tight knit circle, who's actually doing the work. Because I have to say, you know, there are people out there, um, 
as as people do in life in general that are taking advantage of the situation. Upheaval and uprisings and revolutions do cause disturbances. It it you know it causes for destruction of property sometimes. It causes for um, things that aren't necessarily things I I approve of and would like to see happen, but. You know, these things happen in the world as people are trying to have their rights and their voices heard. And so there are people out there who take advantage of that. So um, we want to make sure that we're targeting. We, it, it should be very clear to partners to try to target your resources on people who aren't taking advantage of the situation. So um, there, there are, for example, there are folks out there who legitimately equity companies got hit by uh, yeah. uh, 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 their buildings being broken into, their products being stolen. They, you know, one of our equity partners, you know, lost fifty, hundred thousand dollars in product, like for a small company that, you know, he does most of the work himself. Yeah. Like he packages the product, like he yeah. does all the things. Uh, he does the deliveries. He's the distro. Um, and so um, you want to, I would say, also find those people. Reach out and say like, "Hey, you're an equity, you're you're an equity company. You're a black-owned company. Um, all right, you may have been. Uh, let's see, figure out how you can help that company. Um, figure out how you as a, a, a an entity can actually engage uh, in, in these companies. At the end of the day, people just want to be heard and they want to be ingrained into the business practices. People think you have to create a, you know, people. I think." I think my experience is that people think you have to create a sort of some sort of specific affirmative action program where you set up quotas and deadlines and like, well, we will have 10% of this being given by black people and we will have 10% of our company being hired by black people. And that is disrespectful to black people and is disrespectful to um, the process as a whole. What you need to do, what people need to do is figure out who are the black people doing stuff. There are black people out there today doing stuff engage with them. Just say, hey, I'm here to listen, learn, and support. What can I do? And that's a great place to just start. I, I like that. So you're you're saying, to summarize, ask the right questions. Reach, reach out to those in your immediate community who are doing the work. Mm -hmm. um, take inventory of what you do have available. And whether it's sweat equity, actual money capital, um, you know, employees, time that can be donated, ask questions, take inventory, reach out to your community, and essentially uh, not overcomplicate it with like quotas and numbers and adding structure that you can, you can have impact and make it simple without trying to, I don't know if do too much is the right word, but without trying to systemize it and process it in a way that feels inauthentic. Exactly. No, you're exactly right. Uh, thank you for summarizing my very long diatribe. <laughs> but no, you're exactly right. Um, uh, uh, you know, uh, the issue with this idea of quotas or specific number targets, like at the end of the day, it's disrespectful because it does not, it's not authentic enough because it doesn't really say I'm trying to find the best black person. I'm trying to find the best diverse staffer. Uh, it says, I just need a body to fill a hole. And if you have a body to, if you're just looking at a body to fill a gap in your business, then you pick anybody. You just, you find somebody. Um, whether or not they're good, qualified or not. And then subsequently what happens is yeah. either that person may not, that person may be great. Like 
you know, awesome. But also that person may not have actually been qualified for that position. So you put them at a deficit because you didn't set them up for success. Or that person is not then therefore supported. They're just like, oh, they were the equity hire. They were the, they were the affirmative hire. You know, we had to, you know, we're trying to diversify so people didn't like think we were racist. So, you know, we hired this black person. We hired this, this Latino person. Uh, and, and so that's also inauthentic. It does not feel great for the person hired because then they don't feel like they're really valued at the company yeah and i think what you said uh is a really good point that i want to reiterate about setting up whatever the initiative is for success and you know we're hearing a lot of talk about um performative allyship and people who are acting to to make the statement because they have to and now's the time but i think there's a lot to be said for regardless of what you're doing on a big or small level that making sure it's authentic and that there's follow through and that the follow through can be, you know, even if it's measured on a really small scale, but that the follow through can happen and that the action, the step is taken, that the action is taken, you know, regardless of your resources. So I, I like, I like that language around setting it up for success and making sure whatever the initiative you're doing, that that plan is, is in place. Yeah. You need to, yeah. Companies should set out a pipeline, right? Like, and also look at this as, don't look at this as like, short term or intermediate yeah look at it as ingrained into the marrow of your company so i use this example internally at ease that um when you set up programs and initiatives for diversity or hiring uh women or whatever it is what happens is these things become siloed they sit over here the yeah. company is here these things sit over here and they want to layer on top, right? They just want to layer it on top and say like, look, we have this thing. What I argue for companies, uh, uh, including my own, is that we, and, and luckily my company is very receptive to this and I appreciate that, is that we um, ingrain it into the marrow, into the bone, into the structure. Because it is easy. Have you ever made a cake before? A few, not many, but a few. Right. If you have a layer cake, right? Let's say you just, you know, you're starting to make a cake or you're starting to, you have all the pieces together and you put another layer on top of a cake. Oh, but you're like, but at a certain point you realize I don't like that layer or it's ugly or I just don't, it doesn't look good. Um, you can always just take that layer off. And that's how I think about these programs when you look at a layering effect. If, if at any time you think it's not economical, um, you just get tired of it, or it's caused more harm, quote unquote, whatever that might be, than good in your eyes, the company's eyes, they just take that layer off. You can easily, you know, a, a budget crunch happens. Oh, we got to take layers off. What layers can we take off, right? Yeah. And that oftentimes become the first layer to leave, right? And so I argue for ingraining these things deep into the marrow of the company. So it becomes by unraveling this thread, it you unravel the company. That's how you have to fight anti-blackness and racism is that you have to ingrain it so deep into the culture. You have to put it into the marrow of your company structure so that people know that um, our, our pipeline for black and brown applicants, our sourcing structure for social equity cannabis, our branding um, uh, structures all integrate 
black and brown people all integrate social equity companies so intrinsically that we can't just cut this out. We can't take that layer off because if we take that layer off, we've actually just destroyed the whole cake and nobody wants to destroy the whole cake. And that's how systematic oppression actually happens. People say, oh, well, this is a big problem. How do we fix it? And then they layer these structures on it. And then the moment people start arguing about those structures, they start taking them off and saying like, this isn't working, this isn't good. But if you ingrain these structures so deep into your program, into your system, you can never take them out unless you want to revamp the entire system. And what do we see right now in the world? People saying, restructure everything, defund the police, restructure how everything is done because the structures that are built are not appropriate and not working. And so that's what you need to do in these rebuilding of structures. When you look at your company, say, what is the structure of our company to fight anti-Blackness? What specifically do we do and how do we bring that into the work we do every day? I love, I love that example with the cake that makes it so, so clear. Um, so just to get a little more tangible with that. So in terms of building these structures that cannot be you know, uh, pulled apart when things get tough. Um, you know, you had mentioned about having a really solid pipeline of black candidates and making sure that your your community outreach is solid and strong and that you're touching everybody so that, you know, to your point earlier saying, if you have the diversity higher, but it's maybe not the best person, if that pipeline is full and robust, not only can you find the right candidate, but they can, they will be the best fit for your company. Mm -hmm. So um, can you talk a little bit more? I just want to get a little bit more at the tangible ways that companies can do this, because I think we're, people are starting to get this concept, but not understanding how maybe to do that without it seeming like, you know, putting quotas and numbers and um, making it seem inauthentic. Like, what are some ways in which, which you can make it inextricably intertwined with the company? Um, and feel authentic? I know that's sort of a, a nebulous question, but I, I just want to try to get at some more um, actionable steps for our listeners as well. Yeah, I, that's a really good question. And I think at the end of the day, it starts with the, the core question. I, you know, I'm a very big fan of the Socratic method, the idea of asking questions to help someone illuminate their own answers and their own truths. Um, and so um, I think all of this starts with questions. You know, start with what is our company's role in fighting anti-blackness? How has our company engaged in fighting anti-blackness? What have we done in the past? What do we want to do in the future? How much do we actually want to put into this? Once again, to your point, let's make it authentic. How much do we actually want to put into this? If you say, oh, well, you know, for example, there are a lot of companies out there dropping a million dollars here, dropping $25,000 there, dropping $100,000 here, and just giving it to groups and programs and whatnot. And that's super, super great. That doesn't solve anti-Blackness and racism, though. <laughs> right? At the, at the core, we all have to do hard work. And so the first step is just asking the right questions. Say, like, what are you really willing to give up here? Because fighting racism and fighting anti-Blackness requires a lot of money, time, and effort. I'm not going to lie to you. Not like half of your budget or something. Like, no, 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 no. But you got to put some skin in the game. You got to make sure it counts. Um, I told people recently, I said, you know, we... 
as we move forward in the cannabis space, um, uh, uh, thinking we want to really fight anti-blackness, fight racism, and we want to support the black and brown folks affected by the war on drugs who are starting cannabis business, social equity companies. If we do not have a line, if we do not have a budget for it, if we do not have money put behind it, if there is not substantial amount of resources that uh, shows the company is serious about it, then keep your thoughts and prayers. Because that's all anything else is. Anything else other than time, deep integration into the company, money, resources, staffing, time, all these things. If all those things, all those tangible things are not ingrained into your solution, you might as well call it thoughts and prayers and just keep it for yourself. Um, uh, because, um, I, you know, I, I, have a, I have two degrees in political science, so I, I, I'm a political history nerd and buff, if you will. And um, uh, 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 there's a saying in politics that, you know, uh, budgets define your, your, your values. Um, so if you ever want to see the value of a com- of a country, what countries value, you see where they spend the most of their money. Where do we spend the most of our money here in the United States? The military. Yeah. Hmm. By far. What, what do we value? We spend more on our military than the next 10 countries combined in the world. Yeah. Combined. Take the next 10, combine them, and ours is like three times theirs, <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, so so what does that tell you? Well, that tells you what our values are. Our values are guns, bombs, and bullets. Um, while you look at other countries, let's take uh, the United Kingdom for a really great example. I used to live there. You know what their number one budgetary issue is? What is it? The NHS, the National Health Service. Oh, wow, they spend most of their money <laughs> doctors, nurses, healthcare, psychiatrists, training folks, making sure that everything is like, make sure they have a system that makes sure everyone gets healthcare and no one dies of cancer because they just simply don't have health insurance. There is no, you know, in, in the UK, um, you can buy private health insurance and that private health insurance is literally like, I want a private room or I want to do plastic surgery. It's for like fancy stuff that is not at all like life-threatening. Um, and, uh, but they spend the majority of their money on healthcare. And so that should be the qu- question that companies ask. Where are we spending the majority of our money, right? Are we spending on lavish drinks, hotels? You know, I, I, I remember reading an article about, you know, um, MedMen, <laughs> you know, um, about how the previous CEO, not the current one, I believe, but the previous spent spent millions on events and parties and private jets and so on and so forth. And so I asked every cannabis company, if you have money on private jets and to parties and dinners at Nobu in LA, <laughs> you know what I mean? If you have money for all that and you're telling me you have no money for social equity, then there is you, your values are wrong. Yeah, that's uh, that's fair, and I think that's a really good point to bring up about budgets. Um, I, I love that that what you said. Um, so I, I want to get into you know kind of last question and concept here um, about how to talk about this, um, and and I'm saying this from the perspective of I I'm seeing brands obviously posting about what they're doing, <clears throat> what action steps they're taking, 
And I think there's this line again of taking steps, posting them on social media and doing it to hold yourself publicly accountable, but also there's a perception it can feel like perf performative allyship. Mm -hmm. And so how, how do you as a brand sort of understand, and again, I know this is a difficult question, but like, what is that line and how do you, um, how, how do you engage in these initiatives and hold yourself publicly accountable and tell your customers, tell your constituents about it, post about it, let people know, hey, here's what we're doing and, and do it in a way that is um, authentic. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. So, I, you know, this is, you know, I don't really pay attention. You know, I'm not a marketer. Uh, but I do love the news and 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 I, I I pay attention to all this stuff and I will say that uh, recently I don't know if you've watched the uh, blow up about Adidas or Adidas because they're German so I I was in Germany and they were like oh Adidas I was like oh it's not pronounced Adidas okay gotcha <laughs> I've been wrong my whole life <laughs> yeah I know I was like oh who knew <laughs> uh, uh, but um, uh, uh, Adidas um, so. Recently, you know, last week, Adidas actually did, to your point, they posted on social media, they gave money to, you know, Black Lives Matter or some, you know, Black-oriented group, uh, and then they, they, they posted, you know, we stand with, you know, Black Lives Matter, and we stand with, you know, fighting racism, yada, yada, yada. And then a Black assistant designer at Adidas wrote a letter to the company and then sent it to the newspaper, you know, published it um, for everyone to see. It basically said, like, Adidas is saying Black Lives Matter, but let me tell you the truth about Adidas. And, right? And it, like, went through the litany of Black people at Adidas have been complaining about this forever, and y'all have done nothing, so you say Black Lives Matter, but the Black people in your company don't feel like we matter. Right? And so then Adidas came out with another statement that said, um, uh, we hear our staff, we're having, like this week, sometime this week, they're having uh, an all-company meeting to hear these things and to talk about them. You know what would have been great, Adidas, if you had had that all-company meeting before you had made that statement? How about, so that's 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 one thing, right, to, to, to your point, how do you be authentic? Well, start by being actually authentic. Yeah. Ask the question, have an all-company meeting and say like, hey, I don't know if we're good to our black staff. You know, don't you don't have to say it like that. That's a little crass. It's a little, little, little too candid. But you can say like, "Hey, we've seen, we've heard issues. May, we've probably ignored them in the past. We probably haven't put in much as much effort as we should have. We're in a different time and different world and different space, and we want to listen." Now. You know, I'm a strong believer in, um, you know. Don't, you know, don't yell at someone for showing late to the party as long as they got to the party. You know, as long as you're getting to the party, that's the most important business. So they're trying to get to the party. The party is fighting anti-blackness. Mm -hmm. So you want to you wanna actually be authentic. And it's fascinating that we actually have this conversation in our world around, like, how to be authentic. And the question is, be authentic. Yeah. Like, say what is in your heart. Say it in a nice way. Be tactful. Be strong, be be empathetic, but the issue is then that you know I think to to some companies I think the core question might be if you can't be authentic, what's wrong with like what's going on here right like, why can't you be authentic so so one thing actually be authentic, be honest and earnest with your staff. 
say before you go out to the world and proclaim how great you are and how much you support these the blackness and black people and, and fighting racism, actually ask the black people you know in your life. Here's the real question. Also, do you have any people in your life to ask? If the answer is no, wow. If you only have one black person or two black people, once again, the question is answered. Then then really are not aware of this, you have that. So then you have to do the work. You know, white America, you got to go out and do the work. Marketers, you got to go out and learn about racism. You got to learn about anti-blackness. You got to learn about what your company is doing and all this stuff. So, so, so to your point, learn, pick up a book, read, watch a movie that people are throwing out, like, watch this documentary, read this book. Like it's, it's littered with information today. So go out and learn. And then once you've done that, be as authentic as you can with your company and say, we want to do better. Tell us how we can do better. And to your point, I'm saying, figure out what that budget is. Ask those questions. What are we willing to contribute to this? How are we going to ingrain this into our, our company's daily life um, so that it becomes like the air we breathe? A friend of mine always used to tell me, like, I've known him for like over 16 years. And he's a... a, a very much older than me. I like to make that joke to him. But he's about 10 years older than me, give or take. And I uh, always like to, uh, he used to always say to me, um, oh man, racism, oh yeah. I talk about racism, how bad it is. He'd say like, oh, it's like the air we breathe. And for years, I knew what he meant. But I really didn't know what he is meant. Is he white? No, he's black. He's black. And he always used to say like, oh yeah, it's like the, anytime I would say something about racism or something, he's like, yeah, that's like the air we breathe. Or I would say like, oh man, like, white, this happened, and that's harmful to black people. He's like, yeah, that's like where we breathe. Until I actually realized that it's like this systematic world we live in, the racism, the anti-blackness, it literally is the air we breathe. You know, people make excuses for them not being racist or them not being anti-black because they specifically have not done anything. Like, I haven't called anybody the N-word. I haven't you know, told people racist, horrible things. I haven't uh, not dated someone because they're black. Like, I haven't done these racist things, so therefore I can't be racist. When in actuality, um, racism is in the air we breathe in the world. Um, whether or not you know it or not, these little aggressions, these micro things, these, the everything that we happen and we do in our world is, 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 is just there. And so what we have to do is make anti-blackness the air we breathe. We have to make anti-racism the air we breathe. We actually, and that comes from saying it and talking it. You know, you have to like say like, I don't have a lot of black friends. What's that about? Like, you actually have to say that to yourself. Yeah. And so to your to to the core point is like be authentic, ask the right questions, try to understand your company and your people, and don't go off on social media and in the public saying what you believe in when your own house is not in order. Uh, one other really quick point to that is, uh, you, know, I'm a, I, you know, I'm a big Glee fan. I was a really big Glee fan back in the day. I was a Gleek. Um, and recently, Leah Michelle, who was the star of Glee, is getting ringed in, in social media, in, in the world, because she came out and said, I stand with Black Lives Matter, and we need to fight racism and anti-Blackness, blah, 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 blah. And then a black co-star of hers from the last season of Glee said, well, you said these horrible things to me that were hurtful and discriminatory and bad and whatnot. And then other people came out and said, I don't know if Leah Michelle is racist, but she really doesn't treat people well. 
right? It's just, oh, she treats everybody bad. Like, white people were coming out saying, yeah, no, Leah Michelle has treated me horribly, right? So what it, what it boils down to is, like, look at yourself. Look internally. Before you go out and proclaim your values to the world, don't perform authentic, authenticity. Be authentic. I love that. And I, I, speaking of, like, phrases that resonate, um, I love the one that nothing changes without validation. And it feels like we're in a big validation phase, you know, as a society right now of saying, we need to not acknowledge that this exists. And while we also need to move towards solutions and we need to do that quickly, but we also need to validate at each level, personally, professionally, you know, the companies you're in, the communities you live in, um, you know, the communities all that you're a part of validate where these issues and where these discrepancies lie. And then once you can really take that look and take stock and validate it is when you can start to ask the questions, start to reach out, start to take that inventory and move towards solutions that are authentic, appropriate, and sort of wholly vetted to some degree. And mm-hmm. that that's how we create change. And that's how we move the needle forward. But it, yeah. it seems like that validation and that that asking questions phase cannot be missed. And cannot no, it's the, it's the most important, right? It is the investigation period. It's, it's, it's where you learn your values, right? You, you read, you understand, you, you gather this information. Uh, you know, in graduate school, they always teach you, like, um, uh, one of my professors always say, like, I don't care what you think, just that you think. Right. If you can come and investigate something, come to an earnest, honest opinion. And if you think to yourself, oh, no, this is all blown over proportion and black people aren't discriminated against, then that's your honest opinion. Then go. Great. So be it. God bless. Get out of my way. Um, (laughs) But if you do the proper research and stop taking talking points and talking heads and look at the world that, that is in front of you, you have no choice. But I think my opinion, to realize the discrepancies, the racial injustices, the anti-Blackness that currently exist. And if you can see that and you still say, not my problem, then then what are your real values? Who are you as a person? What do you actually believe in? Um, uh, and that's something that is really, and I want to also point out uh, that uh, companies do not use your Black staff as your sounding board, uh, counselor, motivation speaker, your, you know, we are not Morgan Freeman and Driving Miss Daisy. We are not Viola Davis in the help. We are not, uh, you know, we are not any of these, you know, we are not the magical Negro trope. Have you ever heard of that trope by any chance? Mm-mm. If you look at movies, you can probably think of several movies right now off the top of your head, but oftentimes black people are depicted in various ways, pimps, hoes, degenerates, blah, blah, blah. But one of the positive ways Black people are oftentimes created, which is also problematic, is the magical Negro, meaning that we are positioned as wise, learned, uh, above the fray, uh, 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 more in tune with the world and reality, and then also try to impart that knowledge to our to the white star of the movie. So Will Smith and Bagger Vance. Uh, uh, Lawrence Fishburne in The Matrix to Keanu Reeves. Uh, um, and the list just kind of goes on and on. This magical Negro trope kind of, uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, Morgan Freeman in Driving Miss Daisy, Viola Davis in The Help, the magical Negro trope. And so 
don't rely upon us to validate you to 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 be honest to support like we want to support you but like do we we want you to do that work amongst yourselves if black people could have solved racism through our you know through our words and our protest you know and our anger and our thoughts we would have already done it because we've been doing it for 500 years yeah. um since that is not the case, it is very clear to me that like this conversation needs to happen amongst white people. White people need to talk to other white people about why they hate black people or why anti-blackness exists or why racism exists. And that conversation needs to happen there and white people need to fight with other white people about this conversation. You know, if you got to fight with your granddad at Thanksgiving dinner about how racist he is, then fight with your granddad about it. Don't expect me to fight your granddad for you. Like if white people aren't willing to stand up and be true and honest and 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 fight anti-racism and and fight racism and anti-blackness um then who else will our country is majority white everything is majority white in our country so you know who else would do it if, if they want and so don't rely upon your black staff also your black staff is tired like i just got an email from someone saying like here are like it's this long black thread the chain and they they basically say like they create a whole website for it of here are some pre-canned answers for all your white friends that message you when they say that. And I was like, oh, I've gotten all these texts. I've gotten all these emails. I've gotten all these messages. And it's really fascinating. It's like it, it, white people coming to us for either validation or to say like, I hear, you know, or something. And it's like, I'm exhausted. Like after the, 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 the Freddie, uh, the Floyd, George Floyd uh, uprisings happened. The amount of messages I was getting daily from white coworkers, white friends I haven't talked to in ages, uh, and white people I actually like like these are white people I actually they're I consider them friends or they're good coworkers. Like I don't hate these people; they're great people. But to say it is not mentally and emotionally exhausting to constantly be getting these questions of like, I w I'm your white friend and I want to process this trauma with you right now. It's like, I'm exhausted of processing trauma. You know, I've been processing trauma, I'm 40 years old. I've been processing this trauma for 40 years. I'm exhausted right now. You know, why don't you go and process that with other white people? And then, and then come back to me with your solutions on how you decided to fight anti-blackness. And then I can tell you how I feel about that, but don't want to process the core with me. Yeah. That, that's fair. And I um, appreciate you taking the time, Darius, today and, and sharing all this insight. Um, well, before we go, is there anything anything else you want to mention or say or, um, you know, kind of state before we, we wrap up? You know, I think I've uh, I hope I, I hope this has been a great interview. I have been amazing. Uh, <laughs> amazing. I, I, I just speak off. I you know, I'm, I'm kind of a long talker and kind of long winded here. So excuse me. But I will end with saying one of my um, I don't I don't have the quote exactly memorized, but one of my favorite authors is James Baldwin, very famous black author uh, uh, and civil rights leader and everything else. And he was also openly queer throughout the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s uh, when he was alive. Uh, and so, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of black queer men, especially historical black queer men. And so uh, he. There's a movie actually based on this quote is I am not your Negro. It's available on, I believe, Amazon and other things right now. And um, 
he says, you know, I'm not a nigger. And um, America needs to figure out why it needs a nigger. Why does it need a... Why? Because I'm a man. He would say, I'm a man. And if America needs a nigger, you need to realize and have this internal conversation about why you think you need a nigger. Because I'm not a nigger. So why do you think you need one? And, and for cannabis... And, and how I ingrain that into cannabis is like, we need to figure out how and why we need a nigga in cannabis. Because in cannabis, especially in California, where um, many licenses, let's talk about LA licensing, right? Licenses and other things are locked into social equity. They're locked into, oh, well, we don't give out these licenses. Like social equity folks, black and brown folks, people affected by the war on drugs, get access to these licenses first because the governments are trying to at least create a system where we economically enfranchise people affected by the war on drugs. And so I've seen in the cannabis space, literally black people being like used for their licenses, being left penniless, Nothing like big companies come in, use their licenses and leave them with debt, leave the black people with debt or leave them with nothing. Give them like a couple thousand dollars a month while they're making a couple million dollars a year. Um, so to that point, I think the, what I want to end on here is that we as the cannabis industry need to figure out why we need black people especially in social equity spaces. States start to open up and as social equity becomes more and more the 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 main concern for cannabis how do we address anti-blackness and the industry's need for blackness to get licenses to make money off of their backs but then also disenfranchise and not incorporate blackness into the companies into the corporations into their work not being authentic so once again find a way to be authentic so you can figure out how to address this real core question and like look at your own company. Does your company use licenses obtained from black and brown people or people affected by the war on drugs? How much are those people getting paid? What are you doing to help them out further? Engage with these folks. We need to figure out why we need black people in this industry and then figure out how we can enfranchise them to not be needed and used, but how they can be their own individual people and companies managing their own uh, uh, businesses. That's amazing. Well, thank you so much, Darius. I really appreciate you taking the time um, and, and sitting with me today. I'm so grateful. Um, is there any contact information or ways people can find you that you would want to share? Yeah, I am uh, I am available on the Instagram at uh, Darius415, I believe it is. Uh, you can, uh, that's D-A-R-I-U-S 415 on the IG. Um, and then, uh, yeah, I, justinkind.com, please check out my website. I might, I, I need to revamp it, so eh, take some time. Uh, and yeah, if you want to reach out to me, I'm at ease. So go to our website and just send an e email saying, hey, I want to talk to this Darius guy to our press at ease.com. And they know how to get in touch with me as well. So that's press at ease.com, I believe, yeah. And ease is spelled E-A-Z-E. E-A-Z-E, -E. yeah, that's right, because, you know, technology, you know, <laughs> can't, can't spell anything with, got to put a three, turn the E into a three or something, you know, got to yep. do that. <laughs> awesome. Well, Darius, thank you so much. I'm so grateful for your time today. Yeah, thank you for having me, Lisa. And I hope all the cannabis marketeers out there go out and be authentic and and do great work. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Lisa. Bye.